Movie Survival Guide is a weekly podcast where I, Gorehound Julia Marchesi, delves into my horror movie notebook to corrupt another one of my longtime chums, Terry Gamble, who is hiding in the creepy horror closet. My mission is to learn the gospel of horror movie survival and to incorporate Julia's wealth of wisdom to become a final girl disciple. Join us as we take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but prefer the classics on VHS. We'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices. Spin off into alternate casting universes, crush on some dodgy, foxy fellows, and creepy uncles, and arm ourselves with the knowledge necessary to become the The final Final girl. everybody. Welcome to Horror Movie Survival Guide. I'm Julia. I'm Terry. Uh, this week, we're so excited that we're getting to interview Daniel Krauss, who co-authored the New York Times bestselling The Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro, based on the idea that the two created for the Academy Award-winning film. And their earlier collaboration, Troll Hunters, was adapted into the Emmy Award-winning Netflix series. Krauss's novel, The Death of Life of Zebulon Finch, was named one of T- Entertainment Weekly's top 10 books of the year. And his novel, Rotters, was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award. And now we are going to be talking to him about the novel that he uh, co-wrote with George Romero, uh, The Living Dead. Say hello to Daniel Krauss. Hi. Hello. Welcome, Daniel. Welcome to the pod. Oh my God. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm like overjoyed. I'm kind of bouncing out of my seat a little bit right now. I'm super stoked. This book is amazing. You're amazing. I can't wait to find out more about this and the movie we're going to talk about today as well. Monkey Shines, Romero Classic uh, from 1988. I'm super stoked to get into all of it with you and hear your take on all of this good stuff. So, uh, Julia, I don't know. I'm just excited. Where to start? Where to start? start? Um, So much. So much. I think we should start with the man himself, right? We start with Mr. Romero. Um, And I know that you've been a fan since you were like a wee tot. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about where the love started? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just doing an interview today. And someone brought up the uh, idea that uh, horror really uh, is a binding experience. It sort of bonds people together. Mm-hmm. And they were speaking about uh, a father and a daughter. but And that's really exactly what happened to me. Um, my mom was a horror fan. And I watched Night of the Living Dead when I was five or six years old. Wow. Did it terrify it, you? No. I mean, I think... I think at that age, I didn't, you know, most of it is people talking, you know? Right. So it's not, there's not that much what a a modern kid of that era would have found all that scary. I think it got scarier as I got older, actually. Yeah. But when I was a kid, it it wasn't that scary, but it was, it was compelling and creepy. But I also watched with her um, Twilight Zone every week. Oh. And those, those were scarier because those had some really scary images in it. And I think at that age, maybe you're not so plot oriented. You can't really figure things out, but images are scary. And so that had a lot. Twilight Zone has all sorts of creepy faces and masks yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. I couldn't watch it as a kid. It was too scary for me. I loved it. That's weird. That's funny. Yeah. Julia. You're like the horror is- guru and I'm like the like newbie of the family, but I, I loved Twilight Zone as a kid. So I guess yeah. there was a weird horror streak in me that I didn't realize was considered that till right now. Connections. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, so that was it. I mean, you know, because Twilight Zone was on every week and because Night of the Living Dead wasn't copywritten correctly, uh, it was on all the time. So I just saw it countless times with my mom. And it was a very kind of safe space, you know? 
Uh, it wasn't something that was considered scary. She was obviously having a great time. She would be yelling at Barbara and I live dead to stop falling down, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, and then as I got older, you know, for a long time, it was just Night Living Dead because this was pre, you know, that, you know, as a little kid, it was pre VHS, you know, right. so we didn't have any video stores even. So it was just whatever happened to come on TV. Eventually there were video stores and eventually there were a few more channels and I got to see things like Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead. Um, and then, you know, Creep Show. I remember seeing on HBO. Uh, so things started to filter in, but for a long time, it was just, uh, Night Living Dead and Rod Serling. Yeah. Wow. That's a pretty good pair. So did it, did it, did you look at it and did it make you want to be a filmmaker or were you just looking at it from like a horror fan point of view? Just a horror fan point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I started writing stories when I was very young, maybe like first grade. Uh, so, so you know, some of that stuff was leaking in already to my, I, I hesitate to call it art. <laughs> but, it is art. You know, <laughs> it's completely But it, it was art. leaking into, in, into my life in some way. But so was everything else, I'm sure. It wasn't just Twilight Zone. It was anything else, a Disney movie I was watching or whatever, you know. So were you making creepy stories then or what? Yeah, I was. I was writing monster stories, basically. So I had a friend and started with, we'd draw a monster. So he had a folder of various Godzilla-type monsters. And okay. then I'd have my own... And then I, my speculation about how it, the story started is we had all these monsters and we wanted them to do something. So if, if we had action figures, we would play with them in that way, but we didn't. So we wrote stories about them. Uh, so that's really how the stories began. And then eventually he stopped doing that and I kept, kept going with it. Successfully kept going with it. What a tremendous uh, amount of books of you written and such a young man so much to come i'm i'm excited to see what comes after but we'll start at the beginning of the writing um so talk about you you know you did a couple of uh novels um you did uh monster variations rotters and scowler correct um Mm -hmm. before can you tell us a little bit about how like how it got started how uh i started writing novels yeah, I guess like what, yeah. you know, how, how does one, how do you sell a novel? How do you start to become a writer that gets to, you know, write more and more? Well, I really had no idea. And, you know, I wrote stories all throughout my youth. And by middle school, I was writing novella length things. And then certainly by high school, I was writing novel length stuff. But um, they weren't for anyone to see. Today, you know, if you, young writers today would probably upload them to the internet and get comments and uh, feedback of all sorts. And I had no, no way to do that. And interestingly, no interest in any of that. I didn't show them to anyone. They were entirely things that I did for me. They were just, uh, they were just satisfying. And I think that re- has really helped me in my career. Um, it has made, you know, the reception of a book barely enters my perception. I don't That's- read reviews. You know, when a book comes out, I, it's, uh, it's almost an irritation. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm not really interested in it. it, it it's kind of rollout. I have to be dragged to. You're the to perfect writer. So many people are so caught up in like what the review and how people take it and how it's going to sell and how it's going to do, but you're really just focused on getting a good story out. Yeah. I've always been interested in just the, the work, the right, if the writing isn't fulfilling, then not the rest of it, you know, doesn't really matter. Now it's been different with the living dead because I'm, I'm representing somebody else. Yeah. So I'm representing George Romero and uh, Susan Romero and all those people. So I've been fully engaged, 
with press. And it's been a total joy because I'm not talking about myself. You know, I'm really talking about this person who inspired me and who I, who I love greatly. So it's been an entirely different type of thing. But anyway, to answer your question, how did I start writing novels? Well, well, as a kid, it was not a viable option. I grew up in a small town in Iowa. Um, and this is pre-internet, so there was no sense of this being a play, a way you could make a living in, in art in all sorts of forms. I always say it this way, that I didn't know any artists and I didn't know anyone who knew any artists, like working artists. It was just, it was not in the calculus of a future. Okay. Um, so at some point in college, that kind of changed and I realized, oh, people do, people out there beyond my small town do make a living doing art. Um, and then I did movie stuff, basically low budget movie stuff. Um, How'd you get into movies? What's, what well, in college, mm-hmm. and, you know, in in high school, when I was writing all this stuff, I was also making little VHS movies with all my friends. And, yes, that's the best. Yeah, and I even made a version of Night of the Living Dead. <gasps> you uh, did? That's amazing. Yep. Yeah, it's like the the teenage or adolescent Iowa version. <laughs> it's like it's about eight minutes long. Do you still have um, it? Oh yeah. yeah, it's it's you know it's terrible, but it's funny. Oh my I bet God, it's incredible amazing. because I, it's, I bet it's made with so much enthusiasm that it's just oh, yeah. <laughs> dripping off of the screen. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty good. I play uh, in the in the actual movie. His name is Johnny. He dies in the opening scene. <gasps> He's my favorite. Yeah, I, I always, love I, I love I always, Johnny. I always had to make sure I died early. So that I could operate the camera because no one could really okay. operate the camera that well. <laughs> so I'd usually be in the opening scene and die, and then I could take over. But you oh also God, get to be my favorite character. Johnny is amazing. His yeah, glasses, those, gl- those driving gloves. Oh, great. So yeah, hot. He's style. <laughs> His icon, lust for, for candy. Sure. I'm into all of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, I did movie stuff uh, somewhat successfully, actually. I did documentaries in my. Uh, 20s and then i kind of burnt out in that and really wanted to go back to my my first love which was writing uh partially because i just prefer working alone mm. you know like as much as i enjoyed movie making it does involve a lot of people and apparatus and money and all, dealing with a lot of external factors whereas writing always seemed to me to be the perfect the perfect art is so simple you know, it's like painting maybe and, and writing. It's just so pure and simple. And so I started doing that and I, I wrote a book and I, I sold it and then I haven't looked back. So then we uh, run into uh, Mr. Del Toro along the way and we uh, do Troll Hunters and Shape of Water. So talk us through how that happened. So it's not that complicated, really. Uh, I, I wrote a book called Rotters that uh, mm-hmm. Guillermo read and liked. And I think it was just timing. He was looking for a co-author for Troll Hunters, which is a book that he had sold based on a pitch, but uh, hadn't written yet and wanted a co-author for. And I had written Rodgers and he read it and it seemed like a good fit. That's so So, exciting. Were you incredibly uh, like just totally stoked? I was. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was an interesting uh, proposition and it was certainly something I, it was for a younger uh, age group than I had, ri- had written before. So that was, it was a new challenge. Um, so I went up to Toronto. He was up there shooting Pacific Rim at the time. And during that first meeting, when we were sort of plotting out uh, Troll Hunters, and he had a lot of it plotted out ahead of time. Uh, that's the same meeting where I mentioned to him that I had this idea for a book that was kind of like a creature from a black lagoon 
type story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a love story. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. So great. And, um, and he uh, had also, you know, it's, it's interesting to think of him as a little kid in Mexico and me in Iowa, but we were both watching mm-hmm. the Back Lagoon and having similar responses as kids. Um, and he just really took to the idea right away and uh, optioned it. And so eventually that became The Shape of Water, the book and the movie. Wow, man, you're getting to work with legends. Or it's, like, I can't even imagine you go, okay, I've, I've done now, I've done Tartaro, and let's move on to the person's movies who like have shaped my entire life and get to work with him. I can't uh, tell us how that happened, like what it felt like to, because, you know, like it was such an instrumental part of your growing up. It's just, you're watching this as a kid, you're remaking his film, you're, you know, all of this, and now you've come to a place where you've written a book with him. Yeah, it's, it's, insane to think about uh it's a whole different thing from collaborating with guillermo or any collaboration i may do in the future uh doing something with george Romero or i guess rod serling who was you know died long ago would have been the two kind of impossible uh dreams you know because they, they just built me as a as a human being much less an artist uh so it was a it's still, I, you know, I still can't really wrap my brain around. Like these kind of <laughs> things just don't happen. Right. You know, it seems like what a wild circle to complete after all these years. Um, to be to be a little kid who barely understands what he's watching in Night of Dead and then be able to be a part of kind of concluding the story that that began is, is really something special. Um, and uh, so how did it happen is just sort of... Uh, I, his manager knew me, um, at some point in time, we, uh, about 10 years before George died, we had reconnected. We knew each other, uh, a little bit as kids, oddly enough, totally bizarrely in that small Iowa town. Oh yeah. It's completely randomly. And then, uh, uh, you know, we weren't like super close or anything, but we went to the same high school. Um, And then many you go years to a small passed. school, you know people. That's just part of the deal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many years passed, um, and I was reading an article about George Miro, and I saw his name, and I thought, well, it could be a different person by the same name, but maybe this is him. And so I, uh, I looked him up, and we reconnected, and it turns out he was uh, a ma- talent manager, including George Miro. And so, uh, you know, we reconnected we, we for just a, like, a short moment there. And he said, I'm going to be in town with George at this uh, convention. Why don't you come hang out with us for a little bit? So I did. I met George. Um, it was it was super great. But that was it. And then we all went our separate ways. And I didn't uh, hear from the manager again for t- you know another 10 years. Um, and then it was about a month after George died. And he called me up. And, of course, my career had c- continued to evolve in those 10 years. And I'd done a couple collaborations, which made me someone who might have, you know, you might think of for a a horror collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he sort of liked my books and trusted me and convinced um, Suze that I might be a good person for the project and called me and just blew my mind. And I uh, accepted the, the, the proposal, obviously. Um, I had to do a proposal of my own, you know, basically I had to tell them what I, I read what George had written and then got to tell them kind of how, how I would possibly conclude 
or how, fill in the gaps that he had left. Okay. Cause is it like, was the notes he left, was it like outline A to Z or is it just kind of, he's written what he's written and the end's just a big question mark? No, it's, it was much more complicated than all that. It was, he had written a manuscript um, that was, I don't know. I mean, a, it's not certainly not A to Z. It was more like A to D and then F to M and then <laughs> okay. Q to S. So it lots was, of starts uh, and pieces. <laughs> there were lots of pieces. And the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the biggest chunk, of course, was at the beginning, but he also wrote pieces that seemed to be from later. And he did write, um, he did leave some notes. We didn't find those for a while, but we did eventually, his manager did turn up some notes that he had written about where some of the plot threads were going. So that was hugely helpful, but it was, it would have been so much easier had he just written half the book and stopped. But instead it was (laughs) all these pieces that had to be woven together and bridged. And that took a ton of research and planning and um, that was just, that was months and months just figuring out. How long did it take you? I mean, this seems like a Herculean task to put all these pieces together. Well, it took me a couple of years, um, to, to write it. Uh, that was pretty much my focus for those years though. I put everything else off basically and, uh, hit it really hard. Um, and you know, I spent a few months researching and not, not just researching. I'm not talking about factual researching like there's parts of the book like there's a section on the aircraft carrier like i don't know anything about aircraft carriers i don't right. know about the navy so there was lots of research and visiting an aircraft carrier and all that kind of stuff but the the, the research i'm really speaking of is research into george mm-hmm. and what what was he like as a person um what were her what was his likes and dislikes and loves and hates and what were his favorite pieces of art so that I could study those pieces of art, the, mm-hmm. the kind of art, what, the films and the music that he is obsessed with, I was going to try to become obsessed with too and see if those things that inspired him could now inspire me. Uh, so I went really deep with it and that was kind of an odd, perhaps an odd way to go with it, but I think so. it really paid off. I think it's like you're trying to channel him as kind of closely as possible, right? And to get into his mind, because that's kind of what you're trying to do is like, it's your idea, but it's also has to be parallel with his ideas. So and his influences. And, you know, it, yeah. Sure. Like, so in a way, it's Hoffman kind of like, stuff and everything. I was like, yeah. geeked out about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was amazing to me. Um, just the... Okay, I want to know more about that. I just want to know about more about all the how the characters and like the character development, like how many pieces of that was there. Um, well, all the almost all the major characters came from George. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a, a small portion that I came up with out of necessity to to map to make everything scan, you know. Uh, but most of the characters are his. Uh, most of the general broad settings you know that so the opening of the book essentially has five major settings there's that government mm-hmm. agency there's the um, aircraft carrier there's the tv station there's the morgue um what am i forgetting the trailer park mm-hmm. um so most of those were all established by george too mm-hmm. so it was a matter of finishing out the arcs of some of them and figuring out how they were all going to go in, how they're going to intertwine essentially. 
most of that wasn't there. Now there were some things that were that he had put into place to put later in the book and, and even at the very end of the book, but a lot of that sort of middle path of how to get there was blank. And so I had to I had to figure out ways to connect all the dots that felt fluid and natural it, it sounds, and true to everything that he stood for. Of course. I mean, it sounds incredibly frustrating in a way, but also sounds like the most delightful thing in the entire world. Like you get to go as deep into your favorite thing as humanly possible and live in it for a few years and then also have it connected to you for the rest of your life and like forever. I mean, that's like... I, I tend to think of this, like, maybe you're just like on the job, but for me, I'm like, oh my God, it's George Romero. My name is going to be linked with George Romero forever. Oh my God. Like that would be you're part right. of the legacy now. Like that's the deal. <laughs> like even when we got to interview Suzanne, we were like, oh my God, like we're now, you know, part yeah. of the, you know, foundation They're you know, part of this conversation that'll be linked when somebody wants to look that up. It's something really cool to have you're, you're part of that too. Um, I actually reached out to one of my friends who's also an author. He's been re- he's was reading the book. I saw him post on his Facebook and I was like, what? I'm reading this right now. We're going to interview him. He's like, what? He got very excited. So I asked him if he wanted to ask a question. So this is a question from a, another amazing writer, my friend Josh Brewitt. Um, and he wanted to know what were some of your wish list Romero moments you were dying to make sure ended up in the book. Um, either things hmm. he wrote or you added thematic or character he went further because he's a writer he's like very thorough question here and were there any tom savini like moments that or gore set pieces you were excited about so basically what were the things that you were dying your wish list that you wanted to make sure were in there well that's a i'm not sure how to attack that question i mean some of the some of the stuff that was just in there was in there so i i didn't have to really wish for it i was just kind of there gifted <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. uh i i i don't know that I guess some of the things I, I brought to it, maybe as a way to approach the question, is uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, my my one of my reads on what Romero did with his uh, where he was heading with his zombie stories, and that was a lot of my research was trying to figure out where was he going with all this. He he made six zombie films, so if I could pl- if I could understand the path of one through six, mm-hmm. could I then understand seven, eight, nine, ten, and these numbers yet to come? So that was sort of the, the theory behind it. And I love that you you figured out the timeline of like where they all like if you watch them chronologically, where they go because it's not yeah. released chronologically, but the timeline's not chronological. Right, that's, that's important the, too. Yeah, yeah, like the the movies the way they were released does not tie into how far each movie is from the moment that the zombies rose up. That's yep. awesome. I, I so I wanted to, I need to do, I need to do them in that order. I've never done them in that order. I know I haven't either because I watched them so often preparing that I couldn't bear to do it again. So <laughs> the next time that I watch all the zombie movies, okay. uh, I'll do them in that order. Right. For sure. So, I mean, I wanted to make sure, and it was already in the book, but I wanted to, to double down on it. If anything that I wanted to, to make sure that, this new world order that was coming with the zombies. Uh, he had always made movies about the downfall of humanity, but this book by partially by his design was going to go further into the future, which said to me that we're going to look at these nub of humanity that's left and they're going to try to recreate the world in a better way. And so it was important to me to think, well, what that, what would that world look like? And so I spent a lot of time reading about utopias and, and, uh, you know, planning about what, what, how could we do this better? And, and a lot of where I ended up and, and a lot of this was, you know, came from George's work and how he cast his films was 
that it had we had to do it differently. It couldn't be a a white patriarchal movement anymore. It had to it had to be to, be, to represent what the world looked like. Uh, and so that was it was important then to populate the the book with certain types of people. And George had already done that, but I I did it further. Um, and made sure that we had a, a varied cast of characters that when they came together and we had this chance for remaking the world, it would have a chance because it had these different voices in it. And I'm I, sure there's other things too. There might have been like gore gags and stuff that I had in my head. I have that to I tell you to that I tried. I was eat, I was watching um, reading this book while I was eating a lot, and I was like, "Ooh, man, I couldn't do that." <laughs> it's rough to, to, to read while you're eating. Just it's so gory, but I love it because it's like, "Yep, this is the Romero gore I expect." I'm very glad it's in there, and I love that you. There's so many little things that are you know kind of Easter eggs for the like the hardcore fans, like the ghouls versus the zombies, because everybody's just the names. Different. I love. Yeah. That. when you finally are like what are we going to call these things so brilliant <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that was that was one of the easier easter eggs to figure out that we we're just going to call them ghouls for a while uh but you know that's part of part of the idea too was that you know when this thing happens people aren't going to know what to call it and right. they're everyone's going to call it something that makes sense to them of how to other the 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 the, the fright Right. You know, whatever they're scared of. Like some people in the book just call them gangs and other people call them ghouls and the, the scientist calls them sarcophages. And so everyone has their own conception of what the the bad thing is. And eventually, you know, the zombies come down the pike and people embrace that. And reading this during the pandemic, woo! <laughs> I think what also I was really struck by is just like every Romero film, I feel like it's one of those things that I was like, wow, I'm sure when you started writing this, this was not, you know, pandemic was not a thing yet. You know, this is like a thing we we were happened to be upon um, in the midst of this. And I feel like all his movies always become more and more true every year. And I feel like this yeah, book is going to have the same effect you know of like that's just gonna feel more and more like present each time uh we read it that's why i think he had a touch of genius to him mm -hmm. i think he was a seer in a way like he he was he had just an instinct of approaching certain uh topics most of them having to do with american society mm -hmm. before anyone else was dealing with them mm -hmm. so uh, if there are things in this book that feel prophetic, most of them probably come from George. He just had a, a sixth sense about it. Yeah, he really did. You just watch, you know, even Night of the Living Dead, look, you know, you look at it and when the microcosm of society that is presented there, and you're like, oh, wow, not much is different there, is it? Kind of exactly the same. And it's kind of, it's, you know, it's great that he was putting it forward so plainly so long ago and just oh, saying, yeah. and here we are, and nobody else is saying it, so here we go. And I love that about him. And I love, you know, the, his... Because to me, always uh, for a zombie apocalypse, the zombies are interesting, but the humans are the main thing. And this is, you know, it's always an exploration of how do humans survive? How do they interact? What happens? And of course, you know, we always try to create utopias and they always fail. And why is that? And like that kind of everything all together. Um, just amazing. Um, an amazing writer. And it's so, this book was so much fun to read. And it was just being able to be in that world. And you get to do something that we'd never get to see really in a remember is like from the zombies point of view as well as like what they're thinking, um, mm -hmm. which is bitching. Yeah. He, that, that was also from him. Sort of the style of those chapters are me, but he, 
he had uh, inserted chapters from the zombie's point of view. And one of the things that I uncovered in my research phase was an old short story that he had written that had been completely lost. It had only been published to his website oh, around wow. the year 2000. And then um, the website was very short-lived before he, he killed it. Uh, and I dug it up, and it was also from the zombie's point of view. Um, and it had a, lot of, had a lot of details that were helpful about mm-hmm. how he perceived zombies, how they s- smelled things, and saw things, and tasted things, um, if they could feel hot or cold. A lot of these really just meat, potatoes type of issues. So those were all really... Uh, important and valuable and i had kept this ongoing document of just uh the romero zombie what it what it can and cannot do and all, all the examples from all the films so i could reference okay there was a zombie once who rode a horse so i know that that's possible and zombies can use weapons but they can't do this um so you have like a master zombie file somewhere right oh yeah i got just loads of <laughs> zombie <laughs> files. That's what everybody needs, zombie files. That's what I think. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm so going to start one. <laughs> well, we already have a horror movie notebook, so that's kind we of, do. the zombies are in there. It's just not a specialized one. Um, so would I be correct in assuming that Night of Living Dead is your favorite Romero film? Yeah, uh, but I always put the caveat that it it's a film that's so much a part of me that I can't, judge it <laughs> uh objectively like it's more like an album that i listen to a lot of times mm-hmm. like it's just it's just a part of my biology uh i think w- that movie aside like that's obviously my my uh emotional favorite um i'm a huge fan of day of the dead mm-hmm. and um i i've loved creep show since i was a little kid um but, you know, he's got other ones like Martin that are just obviously brilliant. Um, we are yes, obsessed we, with Martin. We interviewed we John Omphus <laughs> uh, for this pod. And we are just because we're so, so enamored. And he found out we we're so enamored. <laughs> so he came on the show, too. Such well, a great I'm, film. I'm, st- I'm still holding out hope that someday they'll find the original cut. Yes. It's like we three hours too. long, right? We too. Yeah. Oh. Like when it, when we hear about lost footage, like breaks our heart. It's just awful. But we also, um, we did season of the witch, which we really loved as well. Um, and we got to talk to Suzanne about the amusement park, which, um, I, I is getting released at some point, somehow mm-hmm. that we're so excited for everyone to see, because man, it is killer. Brutal. So brutal, but so beautiful. And just really saying something that nobody ever says, which is just kind of humans society, rejects old people and just kind of sends them away to be whatever and like don't really pay attention it's to do it in a horror movie way because it is terrifying it is uh just something that is in your face it's an incredible film yeah it's interesting i don't think he was at heart a very uh scary filmmaker like i don't think he made a lot of movies that were particularly scary i think there's only a few times that he's ever been out really to scare you i think night living dead probably uh and after that, I'd go right to the amusement park. Right. Like, I feel like those, those were the movies that are out to really rattle you. They really, it really changes you. I feel like even right now, I feel like that's one of those ones I wish more people could watch. Cause I feel like even during this last year uh, of our dear Lord 2020 um, and hearing, you know, conversations about people just being like, it's okay if the old people die. And it's like, no, like, yeah. are you listening to yourself? You know, political figures saying this on television, like, I guess, 
I guess maybe they're saying stuff that I think people are already feeling. And that is generally what was, you know, underneath the surface. And that movie really brings that, I think, to light in a really, really uh, effective way. So... Well, we're so glad yeah. that, you know, he's, um, Suzanne's really bringing, you know, not letting, we're bringing George legacies, you know, letting it live on is that, you know, you have the amusement park to look forward to. We have this book to read. That's all, you know, in this whole new universe, if you want to dive back in uh, and really explore, like, you know, because for him, a lot of it, a lot of the films are, it's, you know, you couldn't do in, in a film what you do in this book, right? Because it's so huge. And that's what's so great about it is like, it's just, you can go mm-hmm. anywhere in the world you want to at any time. Um, it's so it's a whole, yeah, it really is the kind of really awesome. Um, so we're going to talk epic about adventure. Monkey yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, neither Terry or I have seen before. So this was our first time watching. I tell you, I, I mean, I've obviously, I'd seen it and I, and I, when I did research for the book, I watched all the movies. So I saw it then, but it was kind of a blur. So it was good to, to watch it again. Um, so what do you think? <laughs> oh, I thought it was great. Um, I, it was just kind of the, one of the things like, like you can't really see where the film's going at any point. So I'm like, anything could really happen. Um, and it's such, uh, you know, you have such a, the, it's just the beginning, right? Like, just like right away, we're going to get right into it. Um, and have uh, the because this is based on a novel. Which have you read the novel by Michael Stewart? No, 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 okay. I have not. Uh, no, I, neither have I. But now I'd be very interested, and I wonder if that has stuff from the monkey's point of view, which would be hmm. interesting. I bet it does. Right, right. Just like Cujo had stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, interesting. Um, well, I was always I was very excited for Stanley Tucci because I, I really yes. love Stanley Tucci. Okay, <laughs> I, honestly, I, that's literally my first. And I was like, young Stanley Tucci, so hot. Anyway, thank you for giving us the suggestion, then Daniel, um, because you gave us young Stanley Tucci looking amazing in this movie, <laughs> um, and, like and young Jimmy Turner too. Yeah, and he's a total slime ball, and I love this for him as this crazy doctor. So I think this is a great film of just looking at. Um, the medical industrial complex as well too. And just like a doctor who thinks he's smarter than anybody. And then also one of our favorite tropes is the uh, mad scientist uh, with a gleam in his eye who wants to like, you know, be the one to discover something and have the first discovery. Mm-hmm. And that's a very common thing we see in a lot of these movies and, uh, and horror just in general. And this is a fun little example of the gleam in the eye, mad scientist, yeah. man. Yes. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, John Pankow is amazing in this movie. So um, I had just seen for the first time this year To Live and Die in L.A., uh, which he is in. It's just like he won my heart. He's like, he's so great. And so in this, I was like, yes, yes, crazy scientist, junkie scientist. I'm into it. Bring it on. All of it. What is he shooting up? Who the fuck knows? It's all right. (laughs) So do we need to cover like what the movie's about? Yeah. You want to give us a a synopsis, a little rundown? Well, I can try and you guys can hop in, but, uh, essentially you have, a I think he's a marathon runner or something. Yep. A professional like, runner. Anyway. Professional athlete in college. Oh, yeah. Bricks in his backpack. He's got weights on. I'm like, man, look at him go. I can't Ankle imagine. Weight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It starts out with this wild shot of him, like naked, like, like, uh, I, appreci- I appreciated that. I have we to were like you. booty. <laughs> Yeah, like right off the bat, there's a naked man workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so he he goes he goes out running one day and gets hit by a truck, and so then he is 
he can't walk. He can't move beneath his neck. He's so, a quadriplegic. Yeah. Quadriplegic. Yeah. And so that kind of ruins his life for a while and he gets depressed and he's, his girlfriend uh, leaves him and he's uh, in his wheelchair at home learning to use various pieces of technology that make his house function. So he'll yell out number eight and it'll open the drapes. It's like early Siri, Alexa kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that stuff's so interesting because Romero was a, a long-term technophobe and I love ah. those sequences where he's, I mean, you can just feel the frustration. And it's that, that part feels very genuine to me Yes, where he's like trying to figure out all this technology to help him. And he's trying to turn the pages with his sort of mouth or his mouth uh, straw type of thing. And he's so frustrated, like nothing quite works. And it's, uh, it's it's those little things that you would never think about really. Like you would think about all the ways your life would be affected by being a quadriplegic. But then you're just like, I can't even turn a fucking page. Like I just want to turn the page and like how you couldn't, you know? And I think that such a great, um, uh, Alan, uh, Jason big does such a great job of this frustration. Like there's so much of it's just his face, right? Because it's all he can work with as an actor Mm -hmm. in this film. And so you have to, express everything with no physicality. And I think it's a really hard job for an actor. I think he kills it. He does. Um, I think it's really underrated performance, but anyway, I'm, I'm probably getting into too many, too detailed here. No, no, We're so super spoiler heavy podcast. It's okay. People oh, know. No, I mean, I'm, just, I'm stretching <laughs> out the synopsis. No, no, no. We oh, want no. It. It's we fine. Want we want it's to more than okay. <laughs> All right. So he has this buddy who's a, a mad scientist. Just so happens. And he's doing all this research on monkeys. Um, and meanwhile, there's sort of a helper monkey program, which is, a, you know, was a real thing. I'm sure it still is a real thing. Yeah. Uh, and so he's, you know, he's living with this nurse who hates him and he hates her and it's terrible. So the friend uh, bio- brings in this biologically altered monkey Um that I don't remember exactly. And he says it's a normal it. monkey, but it's yeah, not. not really. He offers it I, for this training program. I was like, oh no. <laughs> it's, like a, it's not like you don't get this kind of scientist too often where it's just like, I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to like shoot <laughs> stuff up and smoke in your office. And like, I don't care. It's all, none of it's above board. Don't really care. Like, it, like cause it, you can tell he doesn't see a good end in sight no matter what. So it's just like fucking whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And he's, yeah, like you said, the, the scientist is sort of shooting up and he's kind of on the edge anyway. So that kind of excuses, I guess, not excuses, but explains his behavior. So he brings in this monkey named Ella. They get it kind of trained to, to help him in the wheelchair. And uh, Ella's awesome. Like she does it all. She can turn on the music. She can change his wheelchair battery. battery. Wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's just the the coolest monkey of all time, and she's so cute, isn't she? And she's so adorable, and she, just her little like the little expressions they get from her are so good. I feel like I if, think, you, if you took a drink every time someone said Ella in this film, you'd be like hammered, <laughs> passed out, passed out. <laughs> Ella, drapes, well, she, Ella she was so so cute that when I saw her, I think I even said out loud, like I don't care what this monkey does later. I love this monkey. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Ella, Ella establishes some sort of psychic link because of these chemicals with, um, with our main character. And, uh, she begins to, when he gets angry, like kind of like the Hulk, she becomes the expression of the anger and she goes out and commits evil deeds. So if he's mad at his nurse, then, 
for example, the monkey goes and kills the nurse's beloved bird. She's so really his what, hands. Like she's his extension of his like physical body. Like he, she, they share that. So she, yeah. It's, and it's God, just like, just ex- talking it out loud makes you realize what a great idea this is. Cause he can't, he he's lost his body. Mm-hmm. And so this monkey by, by training is his body and his hands. And it just takes on a, an additional component, which is his emotions mm-hmm. and carries out, uh, what he feels, even though he wouldn't maybe kill someone, the monkey just goes ahead and does it. It's just kind of, or it's just taking his primal urges and taking all the logical stuff away. So it's just, there's a thought of like, I want the person to die. And then that's just taken upon without any sort of what happens or consequences no or any filter. Sort of like that. Yeah. It's, it's like what happens if you have these thoughts and your thoughts, you don't have control of how they are uh, executed. Basically it's like, okay, can ha- if I have negative thoughts, is it going to be, is it going to come to fruition? Am I going to make these things happen? Am I willing these things to happen? And as Alan gets hip to the game, then it's the real struggle of like, was that my idea? Is that her idea? Cause he's also incorporating some of her rage. It seems like too, somehow. And also feeling like, um, I think a kinship feeling like a Guinea pig as well in this scientific type experiment and medical space as well, because he's wondering, um, what really happened to him in the surgery as they find out and investigate more, they find out that he actually was probably better off than the doctor who originally operated on him. Um, Tucci, not doing his due diligence as a doctor too busy hooking up and taking his girlfriend. Uh, Um, sorry, he'll get his, yeah, he will. But, um, that was really a, an interesting question of, of just the science and who who's getting experimented on and how much help does somebody want or need. Um, yeah. And he's also experiencing these dreams where he's seeing through Ella's eyes. Um, I'm always a fan of any kind of like animal cam or monster cam. <laughs> I knew it. As soon uh, as my, I saw that, I was like, Julia's going to be so excited to see I'm a POV from the monkey. <laughs> monkey cam. Um, I'll have to say though, my favorite POV in this movie was the one where like they put the camera on the end of his chair so it's oh, yeah. moving when his chair is moving. It's it was beautiful. I was like, I want more of that. I want more of that. So yeah, good. that's that was my exact thought. Like that was so effective. Yes, because it really like locks him into his chair. That thought it was like uh, sort of psychologically really put us in his place. And mm-hmm. I wish I wish there had been more of that too. But there's so many and, challenges to work with in this movie. You have it basically set mostly in one house with a character who can't move and you know, there's so many challenges. You have a monkey, which I'm sure to shoot with is going to be challenging as well. But like, he just took all of this on for this film and made it into this, um, really thoughtful, but I guess it's not, it's not unusual, right? Like that's what part of what I associate with Romero is like a very thoughtful film. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, well, two things. One, it was, I think it was, according to him, at least up to that point, his hardest shoot mm-hmm. uh, because of the animals and that okay. it was just a laborious shoot. It was also really, I think the first time he was working with a major studio, okay. a creep show sort of, but uh, this time he was really, really an, an employee of a studio. And I think that never went well for him and was uncomfortable for him, but you can see why he was attracted to the material. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, we're talking about someone's, base instincts and how that's how that comes out through Ella. And that's really what he's talking about in his zombie movies too. Right. Mm -hmm. He's talking about people who seem civilized and who are going to come together and we're going to make a plan. that's going to go great. Uh, Just break down and turn to their animal selves. You know, they all become little 
human nature rabid monkeys yep. and yeah and the, the, the scary thing is how fast that happens and that's like to me like mass panic is like the scariest thing because people turn from humans to animals in like a split split second and i'm like oh my god we're hanging on this like really thin little edge here we don't realize how tenuous it is toilet paper anybody i mean like the, the hoarding all of a sudden just it takes one moment and it's it is wild um, Black Friday well, every year, I feel like, is that reminder, you know what I mean, of just like, okay, like, resources, what do we do? Do you guys know about the original ending to this? No. no. Okay, so, and it was shot. I mean, this, and again, this was, always happened when Romero worked for a studio. They would, they would completely mess up his movie. Uh, in this case, they shot new footage. Oh, that wow. jump scare at the end, he had nothing to do with that. Oh, um, these kind of, he just when he when he didn't have absolute control, things just went wrong because mm-hmm. he would make. I think this movie was originally even like, like an hour longer. The script oh, was I like two hundred and fifty pages. Like he would just make these sort of personal epics, and the studio would be like, "No, we got to cut half of this out." Mm-hmm. And then and by and then when that happens, you're it's going to stop gelling. You know, he he created something that was longer, and you can't edit out half of something and make it work as well as mm-hmm. it would have. So anyway, the original ending did not have this happy ending. And I, and I really don't like him getting his, um, his spine back. I mean, literally like being able to walk again. I wondered about that. It felt really inauthentic as far as that. But, but- it felt inauthentic and it just felt like it felt cheap. Like, like, like as if there was something wrong with him being a person with a disability. Like there's no way we could, we could allow our protagonist to have a disability at the end of the movie. Like that. Right. And be happy and in love and still, you know, have that, like that amazing relationship. Okay. So we have to talk about the climax of this movie, right? Which is we have this character who is paralyzed from the neck down. How is he going to save himself? How's he going to kill a monkey? <laughs> yes. And that's, I mean, that, you know, and you know how sensitive people are to like animal violence on screen, right? And there is the like title card before the movie even starts of like, no, the monkeys are all safe. It looks traumatic. We assure you they're fine. <laughs> like, okay. But how are they going to have this violence at the end? Well, you know, we were, we were talking about the original ending yes. of, or, of the, of the movie. So this, the ending that it currently has now, I, with him, uh, biting into the monkey and shaking it like a dog in a really animalistic way is great. And I think that was in the original ending too. I haven't seen it though. Just before I logged on here, I, I, some, at least a part of it is part of some recent Blu-ray. I don't know if it was an American Mm. Blu-ray or not, but there's at least a portion of it available, but it didn't, it didn't have him regaining the ability to walk first of all. All right. Which I'm a <clears throat> big fan of. I, I think that would have been a better ending. And then secondly, it had this whole other thing where his evil, the the mad scientist's evil boss. Okay. So there's yep. mad scientists don't usually have bosses, but this one did. Well, he works at a university, <laughs> right? So there's, all, and it's, we have, you know, Stephen Root as your boss. So you got, I mean, iconic character actors. Yeah. I mean, you're going to put him in there, that face alone and just the gleam in his eye as well of like, <laughs> I and they're both, and they're both interesting because they're they're like very different kinds of scientists, but they both have that really evil like I I need to have the Nobel Prize gleam in their eye, and it's totally different tracks. Like you, do you not see you're doing the same thing, guys? <laughs> and it, but you you can kind of sense once I mention it that we don't get closure with that character. No, you know he just sort of vanishes. And I guess in the original ending that that Romero filmed, he uh, goes to his 
outside the lab and there's all these people protesting the treatment of animals in his lab. And then he goes inside and I don't remember how, but all the animals have been somehow injected with that, that thing. And yeah, all I, the, the monkeys uh, are controlling his brains. Uh, monkeys rise up. Monkeys rise up basically. I like so it's a, a dark, you know, so dark it's like range. a baby planet of the apes kind of, I like it. I like it. Yeah. But I, I'm I, dark as uh, Terry knows. Dark endings are my favorite endings. So if I'm like the darker you go, the more I'm going to like it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you're not a Hollywood ending with, girl. No, <laughs> no, no, me neither. I, I I think when left to his own to devise endings, Romero usually went dark. Mm-hmm. That's what one of the the multitude of things that I like about this man is he just is he's not afraid to do his own thing and not really do it in a Hollywood way. And I like that, you know, everything you have it either in Pittsburgh or in Canada, pretty much. So you're pretty much outside of the Hollywood system for most of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's what I like about is it doesn't feel Hollywoodized except for right here. We're saying, right. Is the ending got changed because of the Hollywood system. Yeah. But I like how he leaves usually stuff. You're left with a question because you're not sure it's the ambivalent ending of like, Oh, it's probably not going to go well for whatever's happening with these people. Um, and, I don't, I don't mind the, the love ending, like I said earlier, but I, I, I was kind of bummed that it did have to feel like he had to change so much for that to work out yeah. or that love to be a thing. I, Kate McNeil is so adorable as Melanie Parker. I wish we could see. I like, I just I was like, yes, more of her in this movie. She's amazing. Like all of these characters. I just want to watch them all. Yes. And Joyce Van Patten, Dick Van Patten's sister. Who's <laughs> like an old Broadway lady. I was just like, Oh goodness. Just chewing the scenery as Alan's mom. Um, and just she's like so the good. mom you don't want there. It clearly like, it's like, Oh, it, you do feel bad. Cause she's trying so hard to be so sweet, but it's like, you're in this point in your life. Where you don't you want to be independent and she's literally the most smothering mother you could it have on the inter- planet. It is interesting how they they have the evil nurse. Right. And mm-hmm. they, they they Ella manages to, to get her out of there. And then they bring in the mom who's kind of just a redo of the evil nurse in a way. Just like sh- coated in but sugar. She's the sweet version. Yeah, it's yeah. like sugar and spice yeah. versus you know, like she's like the overly saccharine version of the nurse who's like i'm here because i love you and i care for you where the nurse is like i'm here because they pay me (laughs) right i think it's interesting because you think you know we talked about a little bit like the amusement park and you have romero shining a light on uh senior citizens and here it's kind of a shining light on disabled people and saying like look at all these things they're going through every single day and you don't think about what happens if you have to get taken care of by your mom and you're in your thirties and now you're naked in front of your mom. And it's this whole weird thing. And this is like tiny little details that nobody really thinks about and making you go, okay, like look at this every single day. Um, but then he can yeah. walk again at the end and it's fine. <laughs> when he's n- naked in that sort of bath strap. Yeah. Uh, like that's something that most people wouldn't have put in the, the movie. Exactly. Most Hollywood directors, they would, that's too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it is really uncomfortable when you see it, like all that stuff where he's being bathed by his mom. It's, it's, uh, I feel like in that way, it's, it's unusually honest portrayal of, uh, disability. I mean, I, I you know, I don't, I'm not a disabled, uh, I don't have a physical disability. So I, I, you know, I can't vouch for how, how accurate it is, but it feels, it feels earnest anyway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and it, I think there's, you know, it, Terry and I, our specialty is kind of looking at these multitude of horrifying 
films and then kind of finding the threads that link all between them. And one of them, I think for this is for Alan is like, he keeps telling people what's happening and no one will listen to him. And mm. he's like, he tells his mother and he tells Jeffrey and he tells everybody, they're like, they're like, no, no, you're not understanding me. Like, I'm not crazy. I'm telling you the truth. And like how frustrating it is and how you always as a final boy or final girl have to do it yourself. And even if mm-hmm. that means killing him with your bare teeth, you're like, that's all you got, you know? And it's, mm-hmm. it, but the whole thing is about this primal side of him being let out. And now he's literally just killing another animal with his mouth, like another animal would. So it kind of, is this interesting? He goes full primal before he can kind of become human again. If not that, not that making, not that sounds weird. Not that like no. making you talk makes you make you human again. That's not what I meant. It's just that he's he's gone this kind of full circle and now he's kind of accepted who he is. I think he found that yeah. freedom like through this evil like outlet. Basically, it's like he found a way of freedom, but then he found more peace in himself once he was able to exercise that peace. It really feel. It reminds me a lot of the other Romero movie, The Dark Half. Mm-hmm. You know, when, yeah. when he's when he's talking in sort of his rage voice, mm-hmm. it really reminds me of Timothy Hutton, yeah. his George Stark voice in that. Where it's again in that movie, it's just his alter ego that's allowing him to express his dark tendencies, his dark mm-hmm. and violent tendencies. Uh, so it's interesting. What that was that his very next movie. Kind of. In between was Two Evil Eyes, which was the movie with Dario Argento, where he did one half of the film. Argento did the other half. But his next major movie was The Dark Half, so they they were very thematically linked. Yes, they are. That would be an interesting double feature to watch them back to back. Mm -hmm. And Um, also, I will add, they're five years apart. So sort of looking at Romero's career, this was the period in which he didn't make much. So this is the period where he's just working for Hollywood. This is when he basically said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a go and, and stop making tiny movies and make big budget movies and wrote a million scripts. Uh, a lot of which I've seen in his archives. Ooh. Uh, I mean, I haven't read most of them, but I mean, there's, he produced a ton of content in this period and directed very little, uh, and what he did direct, I think, were pretty miserable experiences. Aww. So we're basically talking about Monkey Shines and the Dark Half. You know, Monkey. So Day of the he makes Day of the Dead, his last sort of indie film of the era, nineteen eighty five. Okay, and doesn't make another indie film until two thousand. Wow, so that's fifteen years. And so in that period, in those fifteen years, we have Monkey Shines, Two Evil Eyes, which is a kind of a strange one off. And then the dark half. So he makes three movies in that 15 year gap. And he's trying Um, so hard to get all these other one maids and people give Romero money. What are you doing? (laughs) Give him all the money. And the same thing happened to the dark half. He shot a completely different ending, you know? So it's just like he, he, he was a, he did not fit out there. Yeah. Um, And I think for major fans of his, like me, we wish I mean, you can't, I mean, it's not, it's not my life to live. So what, what do I have to say about it? But you wish you would have been okay with making his small movies, which he was so good at. And just keep doing stuff in Pittsburgh and hang out. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like he liked working with his friends, making mm-hmm. sort of regional cinema. But it, I, I think anybody, you know, I think it's that kind of filmmaker's curse where you, all you want to do is make movies, but then you realize that most making movies is raising money to make said movies. And like, that's the, the big hurdle for, pretty much everything the part of making art yeah i feel like john waters has like similar story like just you know it's it's it does happen that way 
Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings us back to the book because the book was really um, his opportunity to make a big giant movie. Like yes, he, had, exactly. he had tried with uh, day of the dead before the budget got slashed on that. Um, so he had gotten, and again, he sort of tried with land of the dead and the budget got cut with that as well, but he had had these close calls with making a giant epic zombie movie. Uh, and it just never happened. So I think a lot of that frustration was funneled right into the novel where he could go just as huge as you wanted to. And there was finally no producer who was going to cut his budget. Right. Uh, I think it, I think he found it difficult. That's why he didn't finish it. I think he, you know, he was the, what Suze tells me is he's the kind of guy where he would just go on a, uh, a bender and write a screenplay in three days and just write all day and all night. Wow. Um, and that you can, you can do that with the script cause they're not very long, mm-hmm. but you, and that's how he would work. Um, uh, but you can't do that with a novel. Right. Uh, you'll, you'll, you can do your three day bender, but you, you're barely made a notch in it. So that's why Especially he, this he would tome. come back and forth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. this is like, people saw me with this. They're like with Terry. I was like, I know I'm reading this big, huge book. This is like a, an epic. It wasn't this long is, enough for me. I can't honestly, I like, it could go a thousand. I would like, no, I would like three. I would like three more. I feel like it's a trilogy. I don't know. I'm sure it's in your mind somehow. I'm sure there's more, but it's, it's freaking, I, I don't know. You can keep going on. Sure, I want to know what happened. I want, I want it more Etta. I want more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of those characters. And now you have some other stuff that you've written that's coming out this month as well. Um, which is September. Um, can you tell us what those things are? Yes. I have two more things coming out this month. Wow. September is a fruitful month for you. It was. Oh yeah. So the book was August. Okay. Living dead was August. All right. Uh, September. Yeah. 2020. <laughs> well, I had another book in February of 2020. Jeez, a, look at you it's go. Been, it's been, I mean, I picked a terrible year to just release all this stuff. <laughs> hey, but people, honestly, people read. are home <laughs> yeah. I'm going out. <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it was a, the right year. So I've got out just out as in a few days ago um, from this recording was a, a book called they threw us away, which is a, a book for kids. Really? It's, it's about teddy bears, uh, which seems like an Aww. odd topic for me, but it's a really, it's a kind of a scary, sad teddy bears story. And it's part of a, a trilogy called the Teddy's saga. All right. Where they go in this, they all wake up in a trash dump and they have to figure out why they were thrown away. And so they go on this epic journey back into the city. Um, and then at the end of September is the first issue of the autumnal, which is a comic book. Oh, good. Oh, that's one of my favorite words. So I am on board already. We love autumnal themes. Yes. Um, it's all about, it's essentially about evil leaves. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, I had this idea years ago and I, and for years I percolated on it, the, the idea that leaves were like, you know, if there were some forest witch or something, that leaves could be their stepping stones huh. into your house or whatever. So you had to keep the leaves raked and you had to make sure there wasn't any pathways. Oh, I uh, like it. That's not really how the story plays out, but that was the genesis of it anyway. But leaves are everywhere, man. You can't get away yeah. from leaves. It's like lava, hot thing. lava. <laughs> that's the thing. Um, so we have a question I always like to ask our guests since our, our podcast is horror movie survival guide. The whole idea is how do you survive a horror film? Um, and so we always like to ask what horror movie survival guide tip do you have that's, uh, to survive a horror film? 
Oh, jeez. So if you're a character in a horror movie. This. No. This is, this is what happens. All of a sudden, the uh-huh. apocalypse no. is happening. Right. The ghouls are coming to get you. Okay. What's okay, your okay, tip? Okay. What would you do? <laughs> right. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, these days, you, you those kind of things cross your mind. You know? Yes. Like, with everything going on, I was like, what would what would I do if I had to uh, get out? What if I had if I had to run? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my plot is to on foot because you can't trust cars and highways. Right. Is hike back to where I am from, Iowa. Wow. Uh, my and meet up with my dad, who is a hunter. Okay. So he's like a like a whether it's guns or bow hunting or he can shoot arrows. You know, we can. I think we can live off the land because he 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 shoots his own wild game and eats it. Wow! So uh, I think it's time to yeah. So it's. I'm hearing have a bug out plan is what I'm hearing. So have your bug out plan and and know (laughs) who your hunter friends are. (laughs) Exactly. Make make at least one hunter friend, and and have them on on your phone so you know. Oh, it's nice to have a dad that's going to be handy in the zombie apocalypse. Not everybody could say that. Yeah, I know. It's like uh, it's. I think this is really going to patch things up with us. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, we're going to bond. You know what I said? Horror is a bonding experience yes. at the top of this interview. Uh, I think it's really going to bring us closer to the, the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been an absolute blast and we were so honored to be able to read uh, the living dead and talk to you about it. Um, if you guys, uh, it is available now. Go out and check out this book. You can really delve into uh, the giant world that George Romero had in his mind and Daniel Krause helped bring to life, uh, back to life like a zombie. One yeah, a ghoul. A ghoul. Yeah. A white eye, whatever you want to call him. Whatever, some demon. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, all the good stuff. Um, and follow Daniel. Where can we follow you? Can we, where can we follow you? Check you out. Well, I am currently on, on Twitter and Instagram, although I take long breaks. So the best place to always find me is danielkraus.com. All right. Enjoy your email list. Yeah. Keep up to date. Thanks so much, Daniel. We really appreciate it. You're lovely. This was a great conversation. And thank you again for Monkey Shines. That was a sweet little gem we hadn't gotten a chance to watch yet. And thank you again so much. This book, freaking awesome. I'm My roommate, who does not like horror at all, is like, that sounds so good. I told her little tidbits, and she wants to read it now. Like, you made a, my friend a reader who's not a reader, so I'm very excited. <laughs> Amazing. We're passing on the gift of horror from Julia to Terry to Terry's friend. It's going to be great. Yeah. What more can you ask for? Thank you so much, Daniel. You're welcome. Thank you.